G-E-P-C. G-E, girls eat popcorn. So do guys. Guys eat popcorn. Y'all know what that is? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You turn in your Bible to Paul, and if you're me right now, it opens to Ephesians. Well, where's, the, where's Philippians from Ephesians? Well, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's after. So my Bible, because there's a marker in it, goes to the marriage code, because I just did a wedding. And now we find ourselves in Philippians, uh, one page after Ephesians. And we call these the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul, and I am not certain. I don't think there's a thematic way to determine the exact order in which Paul wrote them. I believe he wrote them during a uh, probably two-year imprisonment in Rome, and we're after the events described in, um, in the book of Acts. We're post-Acts. Now, Paul is writing to a church uh, or to the believers in the environs of the Roman colony of Philippi. He's writing to these Philippians uh, who are believers, and we have the story of his meeting them in Acts chapter 16, which is a doozy of a missionary uh, adventure. But we find ourselves in the study of the book of, of Philippians today, summarizing as we walk through the Christian life of Paul, one of the great prison epistles. I had someone say, I don't think it's a prison letter. Well, the problem with it not being a prison letter is that Paul is writing it from prison. And um, that's kind of funny, but let me run that down with you real quick. We're going to call this study of Philippians fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. Fellowship and the ministry of the gospel, the great theme of this great letter. One reason we have to conclude that it's a prison epistle is, for example, in verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Well, you have two key words there that might indicate Paul is writing from prison. The first one is my imprisonment. And the second one is Praetorian we know what a praetorian is. The praetorian guard is the secret service in Rome. It's the, it's the Caesar, it's Caesar's uh, police, Caesar's special cohort of um, defending military. And in verse 14, that most of the brethren and trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear and then he talks about people doing it to oppose him. And then he says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This is the most prisony of all the prison epistles. And finally, and there, there are other places, but my favorite is verse 22. All the saints, uh, chart, chapter 4, verse 22, the end of the epistle, flip to the end. What does it say? All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Where would Caesar's household live? Rome. And that's where Paul is having ministry effectiveness. Paul is like a nuclear... Um, core that's radiating the gospel wherever he is and he's infecting by preaching by sending out messengers by speaking to his guards no doubt um, he by sharing christ 
the gospel's radiating out wherever he is. So when the little church that's forming around him in Rome assembles, little household thing, probably if he's allowed to have visitors, it includes Caesar's household. Now, what's a household? We talked about this. A Roman household includes husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Probably talking about the servants in Caesar's household. But that's the nature of the church building around Paul in Rome. All right. It is a prison letter and it is awesome. So let's talk about the theme and the purpose of Philippians, the theme and purpose. In chapter one, verse five uh, through seven, we have the, the chunk that like in Romans 1, 16 and 17 gives you the summary of Romans or the, the thesis of Romans. This is the thesis. This is the point that he's making that everything else relates back to. He says in view, his prayers in verses three and four for their, uh, his thanksgiving for them is in view of their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now your Bible might say participation, participation, but the word is koinonia having in common. And we usually translate that word fellowship. But people don't know what that means. So when you're having the gospel ministry in common with someone, then you're participating with them. So that's why New American Standard says participation. But I bring out the word fellowship because that's a special word to me. I think that's a very important word. And I don't think this means that if you're not working in the gospel in this very moment, that you're not having fellowship with God, First John 1 style. I think it shows you part of what fellowship with God is about. It's about being on mission. So they are in, in fellowship in the gospel from the first day of Paul's ministry with them until now. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I believe this is maybe going to be controversial, but the work in you could be probably better translated among you. And he's talking not about their, their personal spiritual growth to maturity. There is that in this letter. I think he's talking about the work that God has them doing because of the context. They're fellowshipping with him in the gospel. And so God began this work from the first day in verse five, and he'll complete it. He'll bring your productivity to fruition, to success. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, that the Lord is going to make you successful in your mission, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all sukoinos, fellow fellowshippers. So we'll translate partakers. With, I mean, it's a stronger closeness of fellowship. It's the same word um, here as koinonia, but it adds a little particle uh, preposition that means with part with fellowshippers. So those who have fellowship or partakers of grace with me, this ministry letter is much more than a thank you note. The occasion for writing is the successful support that the Macedonians have given Paul when he is not supported by the gospel. And as he goes to, uh, for example, minister with the Achaeans, the people of Corinth, they don't support him, but the Macedonians always do. The people of Philippi give from uh, beyond. They give beyond their ability, as it were. And that has put Paul into full-time ministry. And he doesn't cut tents. He doesn't make tents. He cuts the word straight instead of fabric when he has support from the Philippians. And we owe a great debt of gratitude to them because of their participation with Paul through their giving to the ministry so that Paul is able to work the gospel work instead of making tents. And I know there's a, there's a tendency we have today in America to, to think we've reinvented something and say, oh, we want to be the tent maker. 
And the tent maker pastor is, you know, the guy that works at the hardware store full time and on Saturday really spends some time in the Bible. And, uh, and that's his full time work. And there's a lot to be said for that. I'll, and here's what I mean. If that's what you can do and you're gifted to be a pastor, I think you should do that because of the necessity of sharing the truth and being on mission. But according to the way the Apostle Paul did it, when you can be, as this church has insisted on their pastor, when you can be full-time committed to the ministry of the gospel and not laboring on the side or full-time in, in a different vocation, then you should do that. I very much, I've shared with you maybe in the past, I tried my best to double dip. I tried to be a reservist and finish my uh, military career in the reserves. Um, and uh, started looking into that about a year before I finished seminary. I had been out of the army and just doing seminary and I was looking at how we're gonna go forward. Didn't know really, I didn't know at all that about coming here. And so I started uh, into a reserve capacity um, in Dallas and it really didn't work out. And uh, very interestingly for me to come here when I did in uh, June of 2007, I was forced into a, are you gonna be a reservist and get reactivated to, to go do something that was really menial, um, <laughs> it turns out, or are you going to go be a pastor in this church and, and let it go? And I had to do one or the other. And I, I chose to be a pastor. And so I kind of sacrificed the oxen on the, on the plow, as it were, to come here. But I really did mean to, uh, to be a double dipper. Turns out that over the last uh, you know, few, 10 years or so, or a little more, um, I would have been away a lot <laughs> had I been a reservist. And, um, and I'm not opposed to uh, going to serve, obviously. I think there's value in defending our country. I mean, we're supposed to all be willing right? To do what's necessary for one another. But, um, but to, to do this work here with you um, was my calling. And so I chose that. Well, Paul uh, was raised. See, I don't have another, I didn't get a trade. This is something really tragic about me in school. I used my high school time to get into the military the way I wanted to go in. That's, that was my trade was prepping for getting into the academy. So I didn't really learn a trade. I didn't get on my house with an ability to feed my family with a skill set. Boy, you know what you could do if you, if you, you know, a kid starts learning carpentry at 13, 14? By the time he's 18, he should be able to, to use those skills you know, successfully. I really like the trades. I really like the, even if you're gonna go be something engineering or something, you know, higher education, learn a trade like Paul did. He was a tent maker. He was also uh, sort of a PhD, you know, in, in the Bible. <laughs> so um, anyway, so, so Paul is a tent maker when he has to be, and that's a model for us. And he is a, he is a full-time ministry guy when the Philippians get involved. And I'm thankful that he was because we have the letter to the Romans. We have the letter to the, the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians. And he was um, so vitally used by God in all of our spiritual lives because he had the ability to write and instead of using his hands to make tents. All right, so this is the theme and purpose of the book of Philippians is to uh, celebrate their fellowship in the gospel, their participation with him in the grace of God and extending it to the world. And um, that comes out, especially in chapter one. So fellowship in the ministry of the gospel means that the Philippians were Paul's partners in ministry. They were Paul's 
partners. In Christianese in America today, it's popular to talk about partnering with us. When missionaries come around, they thank you for partnering with us and they're borrowing from what Paul is saying here. And what I want us to do is um, divest ourselves of the trite Christianese tendencies that we have and think about what we're doing with our lives. One way we'll do that is to redefine what a missionary is, what a missionary is. We do need and do celebrate and must insist on this category of foreign missions, foreign missions where you leave family and, I mean, extended family, and you go to the work that God has for you. And um, this is a, without getting mystical about it, um, a recognition of where there's success, where there's aptitude, where there's interest, where there's, um, where I can make some, I can make some hay here. When you, when you get started in life, maybe most of you have experienced this, you start finding that you can do something and you don't mind doing it. I can do this. And you find yourself being rewarded for doing it or paid. And now you're a pro, you just got paid for it. And, um, and so you kind of get to doing what you like to do and there's an aptitude, there's an interest. This gets into the call to vocational ministry, um, which is a big topic for young people. Am I called to the mission field? Am I supposed to go to Bolivia? You know, these kinds of questions. And um, I think that we need to uh, relax about knowing and focus on the word. The word doesn't tell you to go to Bolivia, but it does tell you to be open to what God has for you and when Paul talks about open doors in the Bible, he is not talking about refinancing your mortgage. When Paul talks about open doors, he's not talking about which college to go to, or is this relationship that I'm interested in with this opposite sex person, is this gonna go somewhere? Maybe the Lord will open a door to that relationship. That's not what Paul means when he talks about open doors. Open doors in Paul are always to the, to the effectiveness of the gospel. Am I, am I able to get a little traction here? Hey, I, I've got a, a, the beginnings of a work that God is allowing me to do. That's the idea in um, this vocational ministry thing. But I'm, I'm talking about foreign missions. We really need to embrace it, but we need to recognize that foreign missions is one piece and always has been from the first time the Antiochian church sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey. Foreign missions is a subset of the enterprise of the church, the mission Jesus gave us called making disciples. And every believer is a full-time Christian worker. Every believer is a full-time Christian servant all the time. And how, how you see, that's a term that used to be popular a couple of generations ago, full-time Christian service. The pastor and the missionaries are in full-time Christian service. Well, see, we're trying to get our minds around the difference between someone that makes their living as, as a vocational, you know, Bible teacher or pastor or missionary and someone that is um, what they call lay or they, they I hate that word too. Somebody that is um, not vocationally uh, the, in ministry, but is um, doing it. Now, what's the problem with the word vocation? Well, it means you're calling. Well, everybody's called to the gospel ministry. So what I'm trying to tell you is, the book of Philippians will break us of this idea of making those, these distinctions beyond um, our effectiveness. The Philippians don't go with Paul. Paul's the foreign missionary they support. He's the one going around. 
leaving their Roman colony, leaving the environs that they're used to and uh, the environs that he's used to. And he goes to all these different places. He's eaten food all over the Mediterranean world, all the different ways they serve it. Okay, he's talked with all the different Greek dialects and little subtle differences and, and, and accents that you would encounter. Paul has been the foreign traveler, but they are his partners. They are his fellow missionaries, not in the sense that their part of it is to go. Their part is to stay and hoe and rake and, and farm and mill and raise cattle and do all the industry that they do that makes them capable as wealthy Philippians, in some cases, in other cases, just generous Philippians to support the mission. So it's the old illustration of the tip of the spear. I learned it in the army, the tip of the spear. You know who the tip of the spear is? It's whoever's talking in the moment about being the tip of the spear. That's how we think of it in combat arms. The army is a big thing. The church is a big thing, right? And um, all the, the, the ideas we get, the G.I. Joe notion of being in the military, Navy too. You think of, when I think of the Navy and submarines, I think of uh, fire torpedoes, you know? I think of the guy with the periscope watching the torpedoes uh, float right into the, uh, the enemy hull. Um, when I think of um, army, I think of a rifleman with or without a bayonet affixed to the end of his rifle. And yes, they still make a bayonet that still fits on the end of the M16, which is pretty cool. Um, I think of uh, somebody with boots and uh, needs a shower running somewhere and then diving into some dirt and, uh, and uh, hollering his instructions to the next guy, right? Well, this is, these are the combat forces that are actually maneuvering that, uh, that, that do the force on force contact. But all the people involved to get that guy into that combat scenario, the huge logistical train, the billions of dollars behind that one little unit that's out front contacting the enemy, that's the whole enterprise and everybody's in uniform, right? And that's the way it works. I remember when I was getting started, um, looking at what I was gonna choose as my branch, for the, see, the school I went to, you could choose what branch you went to depending on your class rank, which is inter interesting. So if you don't want to be in combat and, and try to avoid what they call combat arms, and within that, the maneuver units of infantry and armor and cab and, uh, and um, aviation, and we'll include artillery because I'll get in trouble if I don't. Um, in, in combat arms, uh, I mean, in, in the, you don't have to choose that. There's many other things. You go ordnance, uh, which, uh, you know, it's logistical supply for, for explosives and weapons and, and, and those things. Um, you could go supply, you could go uh, transportation, all these important jobs. Uh, the JAG Corps, uh, the, uh, the, I forget for a minute, Judge Advocate General, uh, lawyers, you know. Um, some of the most sticky things I was in in Iraq, there was a JAG officer right next to me. Uh, we were both looking at the same situation, shocked. And uh, anyway, the point is um, there's all these different capacities and my mom would say things. As I, as I was getting indoctrinated into combat arms at West Point and I, and I was hearing about the infantry and, and why is the sky blue? Why is the sky blue? Come on, you know. 
because God loves the infantry. The infantry color is light blue, sky blue. <laughs> They're not going to say it. <laughs> These 82nd Airborne guys. All right. Um, so, so I was saying I would go home and just run my mouth. I know you're shocked and talk about, hey, there's a cadence. They sing, mama, mama, don't you cry. Your little boy ain't going to die. I would say this to my parents, not thinking about or knowing at all what that was doing to them. My mother would say things like, well, you know, they need mechanics. <laughs> and, uh, and I would blink and yeah. Well, it turns out I was, I was in mechanic work because the tank is, uh, is, a, is a thing you just fix all the time. And uh, most of tanking is mechanic work. And so I was the guy a lot of times, uh, sadly, holding the flashlight um, <laughs> because I'm not very mechanically inclined. Anyway, um, all these different resources have to come to bear to get that kid, you know, to kick that door open where the bad guy is and run in with his buddies and not shoot the wrong people and shoot the right people, which is a very high stress situation. And it's the movie stuff. It's the stuff you think about when you think of the military. But the, but the big thing that is the military, I mean, it stretches back to you every April 15th, right? The whole country, the, our whole industry means our ability to project power and stuff. And so this is, this is my illustration of what Paul is doing. He's on the very tip of things by God's design and his giftedness to do what he's supposed to do. And these Philippians, I suspect in these, uh, in these Philippian churches, or church, it doesn't really say how many there are. In Philippi, there are a lot of givers, gifted people to give. As they grow spiritually, they wanna serve the Lord more in giving, and that's a spiritual gift that's actually listed. And so what you do with this, um, this particular wonderful treasure trove of instruction from the Apostle Paul is we marvel at the way God is applying what we've learned from Paul in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, 13, 14, that the eye is the eye and the foot is the foot and the whole body needs both. And so let's stop doing the strong break between foreign missions or local missions, vocational work that people do it for their living and people that don't do it for their living. Let's don't make that strong, hard and fast break that we tend to make because it gets very trite and silly and we forget that we're all part of one entity and your partnership in the gospel is no less important, no less valuable, no less vital. Because see, the simplest thing in any electrical circuit is the ground wire. It's the most basic thing. Your vacuum cleaner has it. Your little kids, if you do a, a science project do with Isaiah of little motors, little DC motors run by a, 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 a AA battery. If you don't hook up the ground wire, it doesn't work. And your computer with all its in, intricate microprocessor stuff, if you don't hook up the ground to the board, it doesn't work. And it's the cheapest piece on the whole thing. It's just a little piece of wire. But it's function, which doesn't really do much. It just makes the thing possible. It really just makes the whole circuit possible. And, and it's just sitting there and it doesn't think it's very valuable. Well, since I'm not the microprocessor, I'm not very important. I'm not RAM. I'm not even the fan. Right? I'm not even the air duster to blow the stuff out so the fan doesn't have to work as hard. I'm not even the heat exchanger. I'm just the stupid ground wire. And all I do is sit here and make everything work. And it's, and I can attest to this in circuit design. If it doesn't work, the first thing you do is see if the ground is hooked up properly. I've rewired many circuits 
many times, well, a number of times, uh, that didn't need to be rewired because I didn't hook up my ground wire. I've been sitting there with the professor in extra, extra uh, uh, additional instruction, they called it. AI, that's a different kind of AI. Going to after class, I don't really have time for this. I need to go get tutoring. Sir, why doesn't it work? He looks at it, says, did you hook up the ground wire? Surely I hooked up the ground wire. No, I didn't. Hook it up, works. Oh, that's, that's it. Always check, out, check your ground wire, good luck. It, it's amazing how we, we don't think of ourselves as important pieces in this work. We think, well, it'll go on fine without me. And that's because we have limited perspective. We don't see what God is doing. We don't see what he's doing with us or with the group. And we think, ah, I'll ride this one out. I, I'm not gonna get involved. But in, in this letter, you see the vital piece of every person. This gets into the idea of voting. I don't think I have to put my bean in the jar. I mean, it's Connecticut. Pretty much know how Connecticut's gonna go. I wonder how our elections would go if everybody that thought like me actually voted. I bet it'd be a little different, locally on up. Well, you matter. What God is doing with you matters and you don't get the Philippians without every individual giver in Philippi. How did a whole church or all the local assemblies in the Roman colony, that's Philippi is a Roman colony, which means if you're a citizen of the town, the city of Philippi, then you are a citizen of Rome and you have all the privileges of Rome. And that's a big deal to be uh, in, in terms of the historical setting of the letter. How did this whole church or all the local assemblies in this Roman colony become partners with Paul on the mission field? Well, there are two things that we find in the letter. There's the prayer request that he gives them, which indicate that he is, uh, they're praying for him. Can y'all see that? Okay. It says in prayer. And the second piece, obviously, is in financial support. And we say, well, these are the two things that we do with foreign missions or local missions. When we take missionaries on as supported missions for our local church. Well, we got it from Philippians. You pray for them and you commit to pray for them. And you need to be in prayer. If you're going to be Pauline, if you're going to be Christian, then you need to be in prayer for the missionaries that we support. And we support them financially. For years, uh, when I was here, when I was first here, um, missionary giving in terms of outside the church family was a matter of whatever, whatever uh, volitional offerings people had that were earmarked for missions. We would say, if you want to give to this or that mission work, then write it on the check that that's what you'd like to give to. And, um, and when a missionary would come, we'd have a special offering and whatever that produced, we would, we would distribute. And uh, we as, a, a, as an organization started looking at this a few years ago and said, you know, um, we should probably commit resources from our, uh, from our budget. We should probably commit this as a planned intentional thing because everything we do as a church family with our budget is planned, it's intentional. And these people that are out there in the field, they need steady support, especially overseas. They need to know so they can plan. This is what we plan to do if the Lord provides. I mean, that's as much planning as anybody can commit to. And, um, and it's just kindness to them. And so we started budgeting it. We did it on faith. We did it with uh, gen generosity. And 
we give to many things as a church family and we, we, it's not exorbitant in any case. It's not like a super gift in any case, but it is considerable, especially if a number of churches were doing the same thing. And, um, and God has always blessed us with the ability to do that. And um, I'm, I'm really thankful that you've followed us in doing this and agreed because we always vote on the budget. We always put it in front of you. We're going to, whatever our budget is, we're going to try to give about, as a, as a rule, we try to do about 10% of our budget to foreign missions or local missions, so to the vocational missions. So uh, we want to be Philippians and uh, always want to do more. We always want to do more. All right. In chapter four, you have more on the theme and purpose of the Philippian letter. He says in chapter four, verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He's in prison, okay? And he uh, has no way to um, do his work that he wants to do in terms of, uh, of traveling. And there are many reasons he's afflicted. Uh, he's got problems with his eyes, we know. But he says, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Now, this is why we say Philippians is a thank you note. The occasion for writing includes the celebration of their partnership. It's not really a thank you note. It involves encouragement on that. And it's, it's, it's a communication, it's a personal communication between uh, partners in the gospel. For even in Thessalonica, you send a gift more than once for my needs. So these are the people down in Philippi and then when Paul's in a sojourn in Thessalonica. Now, this is interesting to me. There is no internet. They're sending runners. That's the only way mail is carried. It's not like pigeons are sending checks or with a pigeon or something. Paul's missionary enterprise pretty much is what the Spirit is doing with the Word in him and the runners that he sends out. His cohort of people are the messengers that carry his letters and information back. And so he's, his whole ministry is content generation and communications back and forth with those that he's serving, those that he is ministering to, making disciples of. And so he says that you, you sent runners multiple times to me to support me in Thessalonica. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift for me for more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. If I didn't have the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit of God, I might be a little cynical about that statement. Yeah, 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 you didn't want the money. I know, I know. you wanted me to be blessed for sending you the money. That's what he says. But my cynicism and uh, is only applicable to human sin and our tendencies toward greed. What we're talking about here is a disciple maker <clears throat> walking by the spirit and how he approaches these people. It isn't the gift that excites me, although thank you, it was generous. It is the, the, the outcome of the judgment seat of Christ for you, the profit which increases to your account. When we say the profit which increases to your account, Listen to these words, the profit which increases to your account. The, there is a plussing up of your accrued wealth. It doesn't mean that your savings account gets bigger. Really doesn't. 
He isn't talking about that. He's talking about what Jesus is talking about because the Apostle Paul is sent from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an Apostle of Christ. And we have Jesus discussing wealth in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, and it sounds very similar. Jesus is talking about this invisible spiritual account. When he says, you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. Clean up, people. But, by, but will be noticed by your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Well, that introduces, the, so he's talking about hypocrisy, that they fast and they put extra, you know, it's a little extra dark in their cheeks. A little eyeshadow right here to make them, make them look kind of sad. And they're, they're a little sunken eyes and, and oh, I've been fasting. No, no, no. You anoint your face, take a shower, show up clean and act like you had breakfast, even though you didn't is the point because you're getting a reward from people's regard and you don't want that reward. You want the reward your father gives you. He's talking about that kind of hypocrisy in Matthew 6 and verse 17 and 18. And then he, and then he goes all in on the wealth, on Christian wealth. And I mean, the way Jesus Christ thinks of wealth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves, uh, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I want to just jump right to Colossians 3 and verse 1 and say, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, it, it, Jesus isn't seated at the, at the right hand of the Father when he says this. He's on, on earth in Jerusalem speaking. Um, uh, sorry, in Galilee speaking this on, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching Israel the way to think about their relationship with God. But Paul says the same idea when he, when he uh, tells us where our heart is supposed to be. And then Jesus goes into the eye as the lamp and, and, and these things. And, and then no one can serve two masters in verse 24. You cannot serve God in mammon or wealth. And he's talking about real wealth. Mammon is material in this life and real wealth is serving God and that's the treasure. And so there's this accruing, there is this reward. We, ha we have this, this creeping unbelief that, that wiggles its way in. And we don't believe God is rewarding. We don't believe there is an account that's stored up for us. We don't, we think it's wasted. What, what, what benefit is it to me? What good do I get from this? And the answer is not none. That's one way people want to say, well, no, I'm just doing it out of the goodness of my heart and my love for Jesus. Fine. But is that how things work? Is that how, does Jesus not love you? You're providing what you provide toward him and your response to his grace and the power of his spirit. Is he not reciprocating? Of course, that's the relationship. And so back to verse 17 of chapter four, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. We need to think about that heavenly eternal account, but I have, no, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. So just so you'll know, you know, target cease fire. I mean, you hit me right where I needed it. it. Hit the spot I was provided for. 
love handles are coming back, whatever. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So I got it. I ate it. I benefited from it. It's an aroma and sacrifice to God. See it? This is, this is the origin of how we think about Christian giving. The people that you support benefit directly, financially, temporally from the support, but it's an offering to God. It's a fragrant aroma sacrifice to God because it's worship. It's your worship to God. So when people cynically say, well, we got to pay the pastor, the way you're supposed to say is we need to give to the Lord. And the way the pastor is supposed to think of it with humility, with fear of the Lord is that that is worship to God. And that's why personally, I don't talk about giving very much. I don't talk about finances very much. It's not a real staple in the teaching of our church, although it is a staple in the ministry that we all conduct here in our church. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You got to put verse 19 in it. Verse 19 is the promise. And you have amply supplied my needs as an offering and sacrifice to God, but it's God's work that directly supports Paul. And so Paul is able to say there's reciprocation. You supplied in your offering to God my needs, and therefore God supplied my needs, and God is going to supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't mean if I give, then I'll receive. It means you who gave will receive. And there's a huge difference. And it has to do with the reason we do what we do. I'll say it again. It's kind of complicated, but and maybe a little bit subtle. But it doesn't mean that if I give, then I'll, I'll get something back. That's not the message. It is the message that those who gave will receive what they need. They will be supported. Those who have given will be supported. And the difference between those two statements is the motivation in the giver. I want to support the gospel of Jesus Christ with my life, my resources, my person, my talent, my skills. However, I can throw me into that work. I'm going to do it. That's the Philippians. And then the health and wealth movement is if you just, you know, give or serve or whatever, God will bless you. So, so you're look, you want a blessing? You want good things? You, want a, you single people want a spouse? Well, are you giving? See, you want a better job? Well, are you giving? All these things that people dangle out, the, the religious people dangle out in front of you, that if you'll do these things, then God will supply. That's not the right approach. That's, that's playing uh, uh, you know, magic crane or whatever with God. The treasure crane, you know, that rip off thing. They spray WD-40 on the little claw. Poor kids put a dollar in now to go do the treasure thing at the bowling alley. You take the kids bowling. All they want to do is play the treasure crane. Thing slides out and hit it. And it's just, you want the thing that I'm not going to be too ambitious. Too much weight. I know it won't grab it. I'm going to get the middle size thing. Comes down and grabs it. Perfect. Oh, it's perfect. It just grabs it perfectly. And then goes back. Thank you. That was a dollar. It's amazing. Happens every time. Some of you are like, no, I was able to work it. That's, that's the devil. Anyway, <laughs> that's how we treat God. We think, uh, you know, if I, if, I, if, I, if I work him, then I can get the thing. And that's exactly not at all what Paul is doing, but it's how we sinfully uh, approach 
God's good things. You can do that with any blessing God has. And this reciprocation between you and him is uh, one of those areas that you can really corrupt. I once saw a man from the Metroplex, the Dallas, Texas area, had a big ministry in the 80s. Um, I watched him for a few minutes uh, because back then you had to click through sequentially to get to channel 12. You had to click through channel 11, whatever. Remember? All right. Um, and, and I know that's what kids were for. Um, but you would, you would hang out on channel or whatever, 11 or whatever, and watch this guy in Dallas. And uh, he, was, he was charismatic. And, and the idea, I mean, his, his personality was charismatic. And I think the stick was, I think the reason people would send him their money was because he couldn't be faking that. That was the, that was, he has to mean it. He has to be getting some word from God. He would be like, just a second, everyone, this just in. And then he would tell everybody what God had said to him. I feel $1,500. Someone needs to send in $1,500. Don't you want a spouse? I know somebody out there, $1,500. And, and, and that's the kind of bait and switch that um, I think gave birth to the modern health and wealth movement. And, um, and the idea is if you're serving God, then you'll be wealthy. If you're getting it right with God, then he will, uh, will make you wealthy. And of course, I think that's a satanic uh, corruption of God's teaching here in this passage. Does, does, is it true? Let's, let's, don't let the, let's don't let Satan have the scriptures here. Is it true that the, the Philippians are guaranteed, promised by uh, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it true that he promises to, that God will supply their needs and it's in context as a consequence of their support of this mission work? Is it true that they have, they have in context, that they have supported Paul and I've received everything in full and have abundance and my God will supply all your needs. Are these things not connected in what Paul is thinking? They are. He is bringing these two thoughts together. You gave, you should expect to receive. And that is the nature of the mission. In other words, listen to it. The army kid, the, kid, that's the 19 year old kid with a rifle is expecting there to be food at 5 p.m., 1700. He's expecting food. Is he right to expect it? Like every time? The, the, the first sergeant and those that are his minions in the non-commissioned officer mafia, those guys are going to make sure that whatever else happens, those Joes, those soldiers are going to get fed at 1700. And if they don't get fed at 1700, somebody's head is going to roll. That's the nature of the U.S. Army. It is a big deal. That this, they, it may be a bag, a bag of dinner, a meal ready to eat. I remember the first one I cracked open had, it was in 1996, it had M&Ms from the 1984 Olympics. Anyway, because um, those are shelf-stable. <laughs> it was the whitest chalky chocolate I never ate. Anyway, the, uh, the soldiers are going to get fed. Now, why are they being fed? Because they just sauntered up to the unit and said, I'm hungry. No, because they're doing their work, because they're on mission, because th that's the arrangement. I'll put my life on the line for this work, but you gotta feed me. I need clothes, I'm gonna need bullets, put primers in them so they'll go off when we shoot. Make sure there's somebody that can arm, that can, that can fix the weapons if they break or put re re replacement parts. All this logistic stuff is 
necessary for me to do my job and I'll do the job. And so the soldier in American, in the American army is right to expect that there be somebody to, to help service the weapon. He's got to do the maintenance, but you need somebody that can do higher level maintenance. So it, there should be weapons on hand. There should be ammunition on hand. There should be food on hand. I have work to do. The, the idea of the 19 or the 19 kilo or the 11 Bravo, that's the, the armor soldier or the infantry soldier worrying as a, as a driver on a tank or a rifleman worrying about, is there going to be food? That's unthinkable in the army I grew up in. Unthinkable. That's not his job. Now, if he comes up in rank, eventually he'll become the professional that handles that side of things. But just the kid on the front line. Now, where's the food? 1700. Where, where is it? Now, do you think, let me use some Jesus reasoning here. Do you think that Jesus or that God is not as good a legit logistician as the first sergeant? Has the United States Army got a better ethic for taking care of its troops than God? See, this doesn't say God will give you a sailboat or a Benny Hinn airplane or any of the stuff that the health and wealth gospel says. It says, my God will supply all your needs. And it comes out of his bank account, out of his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And your need in this moment may not be what you want it to be. But it is what God says it is, and God loves you and provides your needs. And so, yes, if you're on mission, if you're like these Philippians on mission, then you can expect more ammunition. If God shuts down your church because you don't support the ministry of the gospel, and so there is no more supply of the needs, well, I'm not a mystic. I don't think that we live our lives looking for that. But if that's what happens between you and the Lord, okay, that was the nature of things. If God makes more people come to the church, or if you get more people, sorry, if more people come to the church, it isn't necessarily because we were giving a bunch of money. These, these are not easily cause effect relationships that you can easily observe. What you're supposed to do with this passage is say that these Philippians were on mission and Paul is able to promise them logistical resupply. If you're on mission, you can expect logistical resupply. If you're not on mission, this doesn't apply to you at all. And that is uh, the big point of giving in Philippians. It's the same type of thing. And my God is able to, um, to uh, make all abundance and so forth. In 2 Corinthians 9, we, we quote it when we say, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Um, this is the idea of the resupply. If you're giving to the work, God likes that. He wants you to give to the work. He equips you to give more to the work. And that's the reciprocation of, first, uh, of John 17. Father, give me glory. I've, I've taken the glory you gave me and I've magnified it back to you. Now give me some more so I can give you some more. So you give me some more so I can put it back to you. And there's this constant reciprocation. Well, next hour, I know you got to race home. But next hour, we're going to do something fun. It's going to be all the red in Philippians. Because we just did all the uh, Ephesians 4 through 6 um, commands. So... Uh, um, People talk about, again, I keep bringing this major theme of my ministry and really the way God is changing my life through the word. I grew up with theology that said, um, that doesn't talk about, that didn't talk about obedience. It really didn't. It didn't talk about obedience. My parents talked about it. But the idea of the theology that there is this expectation of obedience to the commands of scripture was sort of missing because of the thrust of the idea that we're under grace and not under the Mosaic law. And so if you insist on obedience, then you're going into legalism as the tendency, as this juvenile um, theological misunderstanding. Do, do, I, do I sound like I don't agree with that approach? This juvenile theological misunderstanding, it really is. 
And it was probably, and I'll accept it, it was my misunderstanding. But I had a revolution in my thinking, a renovation of my thinking to really conform to the character of the Lord Jesus more than I had before when I understood that imperatives in the New Testament are binding on me. When it is Jesus or through the Apostle Paul, God speaking to expectations that God has for us that then we're under obligation to do or not to do, then that's binding on us. And it's not a theological problem to say we're not under the Mosaic law, but yet we have the law of Christ. And that this is, for example, the great command of Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but the big command, be filled by the spirit. That's a command, that's an instruction that you are responsible to obey. Well, how do we do that? Well, that's a great question, uh, read on. It's about the saturation with the word of God as you submit to it. Say yes to God, God, you have your way, I'll put my way on hold, not my will, your will be done. That's the attitude that you come to the word with and then you become saturated with it and you become a doer of the word. And the filling of the spirit is the saturation, the word of Christ richly dwelling within you for the purpose of your obedience. And so the commands of the book of Philippians are awesome. They're surprising. They're shocking. What do you think is the most commonly repeated command? The one that's stated more than twice. What, what word do you think it is that Paul commands in the imperative mood explicitly in the Greek text? What do you think the word is if you've read Philippians? Who's that? Huh? Prayer? 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 No. He doesn't even command prayer in Philippians. He assumes they're praying and says, pray. He's, he's like, this is the stuff. He didn't say pray for this. He says, I, I think he says, these are the things concerning me after listing his prayers for them. But it is implied elsewhere. He commands prayer. But what does Paul command? It's something you wouldn't expect. I'll give you a hint. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. He doesn't. Love is, Paul commands love all over the Bible. He doesn't command love very much in Philippians. Again, it's kind of assumed. He doesn't, he doesn't, he, he says with Thanksgiving, make your requests. And Philippians 4, 6. I love this game. What am I thinking? Isn't this a fun game? <laughs> Cairo. He says it, I think, three different times explicitly. Cairo. Maybe, maybe more. At one point, he writes Cairo in the imperative and then says, it's no problem for me to write this again for you. I don't mind. I don't mind writing it again. Cairo. K-A-I-R-O. Longo. And you said, I don't know what that means. Okay, I'll put it in the inflected form, Kyreta. Isn't that helpful? Rejoice. Rejoice. And it's not K, I'm sorry. It's C-H. Cairo. Like the big X, the Greek X, it's a C-H, key. Cairo, to rejoice, he commands rejoicing. You kids have fun. Do we command fun? We do. We tell the kids to have fun. Quit throwing a fit on your birthday. This is a party, have some fun. Cairo, he doesn't say have fun, he says rejoice. And it's a constant refrain. He tells them to Paula two oh my in one twenty seven to play Rao in two two through four to Froneo in two five to Kadar Godzomai in two twelve to Poyeo in two fourteen to Cairo and it's C H not K 
in uh, 2.18 to Prostecomai in 2.29 to Cairo in 3.1, Blepo in 3.2, Froneo in 3.15. We've had that one twice now. Genomai and Scopeo in 3.17, Steko in 4.1, Froneo in 4.2. Wait a second, that's the third one of those. Sum, Sulambano in verse uh, 3 of chapter 4, Cairo again in 4.4, 4. Gnosko in 4.5, Merimnao and Gnorizo in 4.6, Logizomai in 4.8, Proso in 4.9, and Aspazomai in 4.21. And that was not me speaking in tongues. 22 different explicit verbs grammatically that are commands. So not all of them are imperative. One of them is a, what we call a hortatory subjunctive. But the point is that these are the commands that Paul issues and they're not magic words. I just labeled all these commands by the word that is the main verb. Now, you don't know what most of those words mean, probably. You certainly don't know what they mean in context or what the commands are. But I just wanted you to get a sense of the weight of apostolic expectation on a church that's getting it right. A church of advancing, maturing believers that are faithful to the word and expressing and expanding the gospel through the Roman world and to us today by virtue of being an audience for this. Think about the way that the Lord Jesus relates to his bride, to his church, to the body of Christ. How does he relate to us? He tells us exactly what he wants. He's very clear. He's very explicit. There's no questions. These are our responsibilities. Now, figuring out what all these mean, well, that's second hour. We'll look at it. And, and, and I know some of you have to race home. There's plenty of time. But this is, I mean, to get online to watch second hour, obviously. But this, this is the way in part that God clarifies for us what is our life about. He tells us what he wants and he says it with the authority he has to say, do this. And then you and I are not up for a debate on what we should do. That's settled. What I should do, somebody said love. The, love is kind of over all of these. Loving God, so obeying him. See, This is really clear. It's settled that this is my responsibility. We're not arguing over what should happen. We're arguing with ourselves over the whether we'll do it or not. That's it. It's so helpful. You're not really an architect anymore. You don't have to design the building. I don't know if there should be a two by four here. The plan is settled. The question is, construction person, you're gonna put that two by four. Are you gonna do it? Are you gonna do what he said to do? And that settles all kinds of anthropology. I don't know if I can rejoice. He says to. He doesn't say should you. He doesn't say can you. He says do it. That is so helpful to summarize so much. Yes, you can command your affections. Well, I'm excited, obviously, about the book of Philippians and the giving nature of this church of believers getting it right. <clears throat> and it's not always we get to read a letter to a group of believers that Paul only congratulates, only encourages, only says you're getting it right, let's do more. But that's what Philippians is and I look forward to working through it with you. Our Father, we thank you for the epistles of scripture which are so clear in your expectations. And um, thank you that if we love you and obey you by, by loving, uh, obey you as an expression of our love to you that um, you have, uh, you have much stored up for us 
in terms of your eternal account, our eternal account. And uh, Father, we don't want to forfeit anything you want to give us. And we know now the reason you have so much to give us is so that we have so much to glorify you with. So let it be for, for our lives and those of our loved ones. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.